Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPOD Sohela Mira, PhD student in the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies at Stanford. Sohela, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much, Lalitha. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm well, admittedly a little tired, but I think that's, is it week five? <laughs> that's week five for you. Um, but well, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yes, we are in the middle of the quarter. Um, the podcast will drop a little later, but that's where okay. we are right now. So busy <laughs> uh, and a lot, a lot going on in the world that also uh, takes our attention away from our work, as it should. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, introduce us to you. Tell us what you would like us to know about you. Sure. Um, well, I'm currently a PhD candidate in theater and performance studies. I'm wrapping up my fourth year and beginning to write my dissertation, kind of working on chapter one, which has been interesting and horrible and exciting and lots of things. Um, my background is in acting and dance, my practice background, but in grad school, I've sort of started dipping my toes more into directing and dramaturging. So that's been new, um, but wonderful and feels in a lot of ways like a natural progression from my own work in acting. Um, and the last thing about me that I'll say is that I grew up between Southern Illinois and upstate New York, um, but my parents are from India. They moved here just a year before I was born. And so I've also grown up like going to India every summer, uh, lived in Bombay for about six months when I was an undergrad and then in Delhi for a year after. So I see India as a, a real second home and it's absolutely tragic what's happening there right now. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, mentioning that. And um, when we publish the podcast, I think we'll we'll add some resources as well. We're trying to kind of gather data, uh, but by the time the podcast drops, things will have changed again. Hopefully, hopefully for the better. So, but uh, we're thinking of everyone affected in India for sure. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you about all these identities that you just kind of listed for us uh, as we go along. Uh, but tell us, uh, first of all, more about your dissertation. Sure. Um, well, the working title right now is Playing Children, Statelessness and the Performance of Childhood. And I'm sort of really interested in, as the title suggests, questions of um, what it means to be stateless. So Currently, the dissertation focuses on border crossing children with sort of four um, geographical locations. So the first chapter, the chapter I'm working on right now, conveniently for this podcast is on India and Pakistan. Um, mm -hmm. The other three chapters will be about children in and beyond Syria. Um, so in exile from Palestine, and then finally the US-Mexico border. And so thinking about child actors, about uh, acting, so what it means to play children, but um, 
you know, also these broader questions of kind of nation states and our current world um, and perhaps the future as well. Um, when you say um, border crossing India-Pakistan, is that a historical view or are you talking about right now? Because some of the, uh, I, I guess most of the other uh, locations you mentioned feel incredibly current uh, and perhaps India-Pakistan less so or continuously so. Can you say a little bit more about the timeline? Absolutely. Thanks so much for asking that clarification, Lalitha. So it is a sort of late 20th, early 21st century um, emphasis in general. With India, Pakistan, I am trying to ground to the, the plays and films. I primarily look at plays and films, a couple of art works like installations, um, and they are all 21st century pieces. Um, but I am trying to kind of ground the chapter in a history of partition, um, in the history of Kashmir, you know, thinking about from kind of the early 20th century moment to this last century. Um, but, but the artworks are all contemporary. Got it. Okay, so you're looking at art about these children yes. crossing borders, yes. which is yes. where the actors come in. Okay. I forget to say that because in theater performance studies, it's like every, you know, but, but yes, it's about kind of artworks about. Yes, yes I, I guess I have a vision of you ethnographically being there because that's, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be my, my background. Okay, got it. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I get, I'm glad we got to that early on. Um, so, hmm. Um, <laughs> I have what's in my family's known as a um, Lalita criterion for watching movies. And it's a very, very high bar of what I cannot handle. Um, and so anything that makes me cry, anything that makes me scared, uh, anything that kind of elicits too strong emotions, uh, people know I don't want to watch because... Um, well, there's no real justification for it. I mean, I just can't handle it. Is is the is the reason I should because it's real, but I I just really struggle with that. Um, so, the art that you must be analyzing or researching, looking at, describing, working with must be harrowing in in many ways. And so, um, how? How do you think in your work, how do you think about what I think is a natural impulse to look away, but not necessarily a commendable impulse to look away? I struggle with this all the time. Like, absolutely. No, I, don't, I don't want to see those movies. When it comes to reality, it's a little bit different. I do make myself look at reality, but I make myself. The impulse is to kind of just pretend it's not happening because it's so painful and it begs so many questions of our own complice, complicitness. Um, so how do you deal with this in your work? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And one I empathize with, these aren't um, easy texts. I will say I'm trying to kind of analyze between the so-called real. So, you know, elite international media's coverage of events, um, maybe just to speak more specifically about India and Pakistan, all of the artworks uh, in that chapter do reference the real. So they're all in some way inspired by real events. Um, and so I am trying to do some analysis across kind of how news sources, for example, portray something. And then what artists do with that, right? How does a playwright then turn that on its head, um, lend a different perspective? But to go back to your really important question about this impulse to look away, you know, I think that's 
part of what I'm trying to work through right now is what's underneath that, where is that coming from? Um, I think I, you know, I feel like if we think of Alan Kurdi, for example, the Syrian three-year-old who um, washed up on a Turkish beach in 2015 and right sort of elicited this worldwide response to some extent, but many of the responses where I can't look at it, you know, I had to look away. Um, and I feel like we're hearing that about the U.S.'s southern border as well, of course, children in cages, et cetera. And, and so part of what I'm wondering or interested in is how are images of these children navigating borders sold to us in particular ways, um, telling particular stories, and how then do artists perhaps challenge um, or complicate these hegemonic readings? Um, because I do think in some ways the longing to look away is rooted in some kind of understanding of our own complicity, right? So right. what's not told is like the history of US interventionism in Central America um, that's leading to the so-called, thank God they're not calling it this anymore, crisis at the border, um, the US's relationship with Israel, right? So I think looking away is a way to not look at the ways in which we um, are completely complicit and in fact benefiting from these systems. Um, and then I have this still very worked, unworked out instinct that there is a tendency in, you know, again, these kind of global media corporations, say the New York Times, um, a tendency to separate the question of being a refugee or being stateless from uh, being a child. So mm. children are really in the spotlight and we're shown these images of children that I think maybe relying on kind of romantic conceptions of children as innocent, et cetera. But I think the side, the flip side of that is that parents, then adults who are stateless and refugees are easily rendered as violent, um, you know, dangerous, et cetera, with this kind of lack of understanding that children grow up to become adults, right? There's this very almost purposeful division. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see this play out in a lot of ways. And part of what I'm interested in though is this idealization of children and how it doesn't at all affect their, like actually affect their treatment in the world. So you see three-year-olds um, being forced to represent themselves in immigration court in English, in a foreign language, right? So it's uh, just all very convoluted and, and hypocritical in many ways. And that's what I'm trying to dig into. Um, but it's, it's incredibly difficult. I take a lot of breaks. It's emotionally draining. Um, I do think looking at art helps. It's inspiring. Um, it can be a salve. So that's like one thing that I have found maybe just because this has been such a difficult year, I've, I've mostly chosen to focus on pieces that I love um, that I think are doing really good work. And so that's been refreshing. Um, and then yeah, totally on a personal level, like trying to move every day. I've practiced yoga for many years, dancing, you know, just trying to stay grounded um, and optimistic while also diving deep into this work. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for reminding us of the importance of self-care. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, it, it's hard to make time for it, but it needs to, it needs to be done. I'm thinking as you're speaking about, um, the, the manageability of watching art that's painful that I don't I don't can't think of any examples off the top of my head but I do know that often movies that deal with these really difficult topics like 
there's, if not a silver lining, there's something about humanity that's positive that one takes away from that because otherwise those movies would perhaps be unwatchable. I don't know. Sure. And so that makes for very beautiful films that are very moving and one might recommend to one's friends. But they're also, are they a little bit disingenuous? Because there aren't really all that many silver linings for the reality of these children. Absolutely. And yes, I think we have to be really careful not to kind of fall prey to naive, like humanistic notions that aren't um, grounded in the reality. And I will say that, for example, I do right now, I'm looking at two big Bollywood films. Uh, so Bollywood being very much in this category. One of them is um, Kabir Khan's Bajrangi Bhaijan, if folks have seen it. But I guess, you know, Two things that interest me about that film, of, of course, it's this happy, utopic ending and whatever. But I think one, I'm interested in what kind of desire or longing is still present. You know, what what might the film be suggesting about um, what was extraordinarily popular, third most popular Indian film mm. ever. So where, how do we understand sort of audience's response to this notion of India and Pakistan as united again, or, you know, at least not in an antagonistic relationship. Um, and then the other much more, I guess, technical part of my interest is in this question of children acting. So there's a six-year-old child who's uh, one of the protagonists in that film. And so I think there's a lot to dig into in how children are cast. Um, so who, uh, looks like a sympathetic child, you know, um, how they behave, how they are directed, even what they understand of the roles that they play. So that's the kind of practice side and where I get to kind of lean into my own practice background to think about what um, a real focus on acting uh, might also start to reveal about larger cultural conceptions around children. So I want to ask you about the word play and, and maybe this is a little bit, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, it might not be pertaining to your research all that much because it's, it's kind of me nerding out on language, uh, but there is something, especially because you work with children. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, uh, play is the domain of children, I suppose, is what I'm thinking, but in the world of um, self-help, I think, especially in this past year, when everything has been so serious, um, we as privileged yet overburdened adults are often encouraged to learn to be quote unquote playful again. And, and there's kind of a drive within self-help language uh, to learn to play. Um, yet these children, the children who are in, in, the, the subject of the art that you're working with, their playfulness has been taken away from them by their circumstances. They're the ones that should be playing. And, and part of the reason that we as privileged adults are so stressed out that we need to quote unquote learn to play is because of the very systems that create these circumstances for these children that they cannot have play. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, <laughs> it's messed up. Is it messed up? It's messed up. <laughs> Definitely messed up. Um, and actually, I think a really interesting insight, not necessarily one I had thought of before you mentioned it, of kind of this connection between, 
you know, neoliberal work conditions in the first world causing this level of stress and anxiety that leads to like therapeutic calls for playfulness right. inside of really that same coin, which is right. children being denied childhoods entirely. Um, whether that's through questions of migration and displacement that I look at, child labor, et cetera, right? So I actually think there's something there and thank you. And I will um, think more about this, but, but to answer the question about play, you know, I, I see it currently in the, in the dissertation working title, and doing a couple of things. So the most basic being what I've been speaking about of playing children on stage and screen. Um, but then, you know, also this idea of children literally playing in a sort of child development context. So one piece that I'm interested in looking at in the US-Mexico chapter is Ronald Rael and Virginia Sanfratello's teeter-totter wall. So this went up in the summer of 2019 and it was um, six, bright pink, huge seesaws that they built to cross the border wall. And right. so children on both sides could play together. And, you know, that idea of the seesaw, the symbolism there, of course, Border Patrol tore it down like really quickly. But um, I think so that, and then finally a bit of, and perhaps this is where your point will really come in, Lalitha, this idea of, you know, playing children as kind of pawns um, in these geopolitical, uh, policy discourses, corporate investment priorities, um, interventions, brand and marketing campaigns, right? So children as, as tools, as manipulated, as played. Um, but, you know, play is also interesting because it was child psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott's work on child development and play that inspired Richard Checkner, who is often credited as sort of the father of performance studies. Um, mm -hmm. And he had come up with this idea around performance that the actor um, you know, goes from the me to the not me to the role to the not not me. And this was very much coming from Winnicott as sort of how children play. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's that element too, kind of coming back to questions of performance. Um, and you know, in what ways do child actors complicate this not not me role? Um, and are they also received differently? Do we as spectators um, see child performances as somehow more transparent, less transparent mm. than adult counterparts, right? Like a number of scholars have written about this, but this phenomenon of when you see a child, like especially some, you know, a child under 10 acting, you wonder, are they acting or are they just being themselves, right? <laughs> like there's an ambiguity there that, that I think might be quite productive and interesting to keep thinking about. Yeah, and especially when I watch children on screen and I think about, you know, how hard it was to get my four-year-old to put his shoes on. I wonder, like, how do they even manage this? this <laughs> do they, and, and, and in the types of, you know, and certainly in other chapters and even in India, Pakistan, there are, Badrangi's kind of a fun film. There are darker um, examples. Do you wonder how much does the child understand, you right. know, right? right. Like, yeah. what does it mean to be playing a refugee when you're six? Like, um, so I think there's that whole aspect as well. And will you look at that, the kind of psychoanalytical aspect of that? Is there space for that? You know, I don't know. Um, I hope so. I did one interview with a child actor about a play that I actually saw in San Francisco. So she's a Bay Area native, um, but played a Syrian refugee child. And it was really fun to kind of hmm. get to chat with her resumed and hear about 
her own reading of the play she was in. One thing I was struck by was the, in the play, it was the jungle set um, in the Calais camp mm-hmm. was kind of her, she talked about the play like it was something she saw <laughs> as opposed to something she was in, you know? And I think there's perhaps uh, something happening there with how children are employed by creative teams. Um, right. So we'll see. I would love to get into the kind of psychoanalytic side. Um, to be determined, but I'll keep you posted. Yes, yes. And maybe it's a future <laughs> project if there's no space for it in the PhD. As you know, a PhD can go on forever and it shouldn't. So. I know. I know. I, I you want need to do so and then. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm always just trying to rein myself in. So we'll see. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, all right. Now you mentioned directing uh, in your introduction. So I was very fortunate to see your co-directed play Baby Camp uh, on Zoom. Uh, and I think it was my second experience, um, second or third ex- experience seeing theater on Zoom. And I thought it actually worked amazingly well. Um, <laughs> and it was very, very enjoyable. So very relatable topic. It was great. <laughs> Um, so are you going to do more Zoom shows? And what was that like doing theatre on Zoom? And what's the future of theatre? I was talking to a colleague earlier about going inside to have dinner. And I was like, I'm never going inside again. It's <laughs> Absolutely. I can't imagine it as we're sitting here in April 2021. Absolutely. No, um, all good questions. Thank you for coming to Baby Camp. Yeah, it was <laughs> my pleasure. It was so good. Uh, it was really fun, and I really have to shout out the playwright Nandita Shinoy for writing such an amazing play. She also came to uh, one of our rehearsals, which will I will say is one of the advantages of Zoom theater is folks can kind of. She's in New York, but right. did a rehearsal, right? Came to our um, reading, was in the talk back. So uh, that has been one silver lining. I think is this increased ability to collaborate across space. Um, but that said. I'm personally trying to avoid getting involved with Zoom theater to the extent I can. I mean, I loved doing that reading. I think staged readings work really well on Zoom, but when you start trying to bring in, at least for me, a ton of tech, et cetera, I think the focus can shift from the aspects of theater that at least I'm most interested in to this more sort of really tech heavy side of things. Um, And it's, you know, beyond a cliche at this point, but Zoom fatigue is real and rehearsing for hours on Zoom was, I did find directing, you know, for me, so much of directing is just paying really, really close attention. It's just watching really carefully, seeing what the actors are bringing and doing that on Zoom is just, I would have a headache at the end of every rehearsal. Mm. Just trying to narrow in, you have less information, you're missing the body language, et cetera. So, um, so hoping to avoid Zoom theater and you know, really hoping to just be able to do my next thing in person, I am excited to be assistant directing. Um, my advisor, Samuel Saber, is directing Betty Chamier's As Soon as Impossible in the fall. So I'm assistant directing that and oh. fingers crossed it'll happen in person. But I think you're right that there's a lot of anxiety around moving back inside into a closed space like a theater. So. We'll have to see. I know there's been a lot of outdoor theater happening. We're heading towards summer. So, you know, I'm not sure, but I wonder if Shakespeare in the park and things like that will. Why is it always Shakespeare in the park? Why can't we have other people in the park? Yeah. <laughs> we need to. I think that maybe that's right. what we'll see in summer 2021, right? Is like Did that. Pattern that back in the 16th century England. Like what? <laughs> it's always Shakespeare in the park. I want to have 
Mira <laughs> in the park directing anything. I appreciate that. I do think that might be one thing that we do is move outside. Um, I may have mentioned to you in the past, Lolita, but I did see like conversation on Twitter about um, theaters setting up plexiglass divisions in the seats so that people are like divided by the folks. Oh, inside. Inside, so it's indoors, but you kind right. of have these compartments, uh, boxes. Yeah. To So I don't know if folks will actually go for that, but that I do think people are trying to respond to this. Um, yeah, but the future of theater remains uncertain, <laughs> I think. If the play that you're uh, assisted directing this fall, if it, it can't be inside, will you do it outside or is it inside or not at all? You know, I don't know. Maybe not every play lends itself to an outside performance. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'll defer to Samer on this, but I think what's nice about this play is it is set uh, largely outside. It's set in Northern California, um, a seaside location with two trailers. So it's in some ways does kind of lend itself to a site specific or outdoor setting. Um, that said, our wonderful designer has been designing for one of the TAPS theaters. So we are hoping to be back in person. I think with vaccination rollouts, um, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, but, but I feel I, on this one, you should just get a month in Carmel. I, yeah, I was like, I wouldn't mind a little <laughs> getaway, one month retreat. So be careful what you don't wish for, seriously. <laughs> so, so we'll see. But I, I think there is a staged reading of the play being worked on right now. My friend and colleague Marina is actually working a lot on that one. And I kind of bowed out because of my zoom issues but um that's more of a reading and i i believe most of the creative team feels like we do want to do something in person and over virtual whether that's indoor or outdoor is still to be determined okay well i look forward to hearing more uh, good luck with that and i hope it works Bye. as you as you want it to um so you mentioned as your final uh, kind of self-identifying point that um you were born in you moved between southern illinois and upstate new york in your childhood but your parents came from india uh, just before you were born and so um it seems that being indian or south asian is an important part of your identity do you say more about that how does that play out and, and do you always i mean do you feel do you feel to mention that because we're in the center for south asia or is that something you you really feel is an important part of your life wherever you go absolutely that's a great question i do think it's a really important part of who i am and i feel like um I don't know. Uh, I will say that these last few weeks and watching the COVID situation in India, I feel quite a bit like I did last summer after George Floyd was murdered. So I do feel like when things are happening there, even the farmers protest, my mom and I have been watching nonstop, like it feels close, right? It feels immediate. Um, and so I would say that India feels very much like a part of my everyday life. Both my grandmas are there um, and I'm very close to them. Its relationship to my work in grad school has been really interesting. Um, as my close friends know, shout out to Rishika. Um, it's been a winding road. I was basically just really resistant to working on India when I came into grad school. I felt um, both in the admissions process and in my earlier years, like 
many were encouraging me to work on India, given how much time I spent there. I speak Hindi, um, you know, and somehow I just was very resistant to it. I was like, no, I don't want to work on India. Like I, it was this weird thing. And I had to really spend a lot of time on why that was. I think one part of that, when I got really honest with myself was that with India, I'm always aware of what I don't know. So what I find is I'm always second guessing my perspective on the country as somebody who's diasporic. Um, and also that when I spend enough time in India, when I lived in Bombay, when I lived in Delhi, many of my, you know, ideas were upended. And so this awareness that like, when I live there, when I spend enough time there, I realize I'm often wrong. And, and so then a fear about trying to do research from here. Um, I think, though, so because of that, this India-Pakistan chapter was, in my perspective, the least worked out. It was kind of very harried and like I didn't have good case studies and my advisor, genius that he is, suggested I start there. He was like, I think that is your whatever, Achilles heel, your right. weakest point. It's the Basically. what chapter I'm most worried about, you know? So start there. And I, yeah. when he told wow. me that in January, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, can I just write my Syria chapter? You know, like I've already written so much. So I was not happy, um, but he's always right. So I did kind of lean into that and it's led to this crazy now, wow, four months of reading everything I can about partition, which is interesting. My mom's parents are Sikh Punjabis. Well, my grandpa was, um, and they did both cross from Pakistan uh, to India in 47. My grandma was only six. Um, and so that's a personal family history that hasn't been spoken about much. When I read Urvashi Battaglia's The Other Side of Silence, I related to it a lot and felt like it is very much an unspoken aspect um, in my own family. And, you know, I've heard a lot more about 1984. Uh, my parents were about to get married. Um, my grandfather and uncle all wear turbans. So that was like a moment that I'd heard a lot about, but her book kind of beginning with 84 and then saying we need to look at partition was really interesting to me and, and made me think a lot about the current um, moment in India and how these, I don't know how kind of the legacy of partition continues in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, so basically now I'm grateful to uh, Samer for encouraging me to really dive into this, but I think it is interesting being Indian American, coming to grad school, being so heavily encouraged to work on India, my own resistance, and then finally, um, maybe just this year leaning into it. Uh, but maybe it was also the personal that I was shying away from, you know. It, it sounds like you uh, made quite the journey. I think it's, I, I think this will be extremely relatable to many, if not all, diasporic people that that um, the sense of identity, the sense of belonging and, and then coming to terms with with one's own history. I think that's it's powerful and, and it's, I think it will be ongoing, but um, congratulations to Summer, I guess, for making this. Summer, if you listen to this. <laughs> and certainly congratulations to you for taking it. I would have pushed back hard. I know, like starting with the toughest, whoa. I know, I was initially like, <laughs> but, but I'm grateful now. 
Well, good, good. Um, thank you so much for making time for me today. It's been so lovely getting to know you. I'm so grateful for the conversation, Lalita. You've given me a lot to think about. So thank you. Um, this good. was really, really fun. I love the podcast and love listening to it. So I'm really honored to be part of it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I look forward to hopefully seeing an in-person play directed by you. <laughs> I hope so. Outside or inside <laughs> before too long. And, and good luck with the dissertation. Thank you so much. I want to also thank Soham Shiva for creating the music for the intro and outro of the podcast. And as always, Simrat Mataru for doing post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.